Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Hey man, good morning. How are you? Happy Mother's Day. Good to see you. All right, let's go. Mark chapter 10 is where we find ourselves this week after Wayne's wonderful sermon on Jesus and children. Last week on Mark 10, 13 through 16, we're going to pick right back up in uh, Mark chapter 10, and we're starting in verse 17. And today we're going to read what I think is uh, a familiar interaction where Jesus encounters this rich young man. And in an age of great wealth, in fact, listen, we probably live in the most prosperous country in the history of civilization. I think it would do us well to sort of sit up and take notice how Jesus interacts with a young man whose greatest hindrance in coming to Jesus was his wealth. And so we're going to read that in just a moment. Um, but before I do that, if you, let me mention if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to use the one in the chair in the rack in front of you. You can use that Bible, and if you're not used to looking up passages in the Bible, you can find Mark chapter 10 on verse are on, cha- on page 846, and we're going to start with verse 17. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to keep that, make it your own. Uh, if you're a young military guy here, we're grateful that you're here. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take that, make it yours. Sorry that you're here on Mother's Day um, and not home with your mama, eating her cooking and uh, mowing the yard for her if you're stationed here in the Army. But uh, take that Bible, read it. As That'd be a great gift for your mother to take a Bible and start reading it, so we're glad you're here. Remember to call her, too. All right, well, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us before I read. And then I have just a simple outline to work through in this text. In fact, I'm going to give it to you right now, just so you um, aren't sort of wondering where we're going, give you sort of the the signposts along the way, and no real application that is written out on the screen. In fact, there's just too long the things I want to say about each of these points. We're going to summarize at the end, and if you're in my community group and you kid me about how I don't have alliterated points by application, and today you are going to be particularly frustrated, and we can take that up Tuesday when we meet for a community group at my house, Um, and those of you uh, know who I'm talking about. Um, I will delete your email if you make fun of my application today. So here's, here's my, my three points that I think is the outline of this text. Jesus teaches on wealth. Jesus teaches on salvation. And Jesus teaches on reward. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we come to you now with gratefulness, with joy, with humility that we can even gather together open up your word and think deeply about what Jesus has done for us, how you have reconciled your people to yourself through Jesus' death and life and resurrection. Father, on this Mother's Day, we come and we do thank you for mothers, for how good you have been to us, for the labor of our mothers, for the mothers that are in this room who, who are holding families and in a large sense, culture together through their, through their love and devotion. Even as we pray that, Lord, we remember women even in this room who may be desiring to be mothers that are struggling to conceive. We pray, God, that today would not be painful for them, 
but that you would encourage them and let them know that here in this place is a place where we exalt womanhood in all of its beauty and that womanhood finds its deepest expression not just in its ability to conceive a child, but in its ability to worship the great God and King, Jesus. Lord, we pray for our church and the culture of womanhood and femininity, that this would be a safe place for young women and old women to make much of Jesus. Lord, we pray for other churches in our city that are gathering today. In particular, I think of Westminster Presbyterian Church on Double Churches Road and the pastor there, Mitch McGinnis, who is a dear brother. We pray that you'd bless him and his preaching of the scriptures today and bless that congregation. Father, we think about Christians in other parts of the world that are in much more difficult circumstances than we are. I think of Christians in northern Nigeria who are regularly facing violent persecution for their faith. Lord, may we realize that the setting that we live in here in America is extremely abnormal for the history of the church and and even Christians alive today. So we pray for our brothers and sisters who are facing the norm of persecution. Lord, I pray for believers in this room that our hearts would be stirred and our affections would be deepened for Jesus as we work through this passage. And I pray for my friends in this room who are not yet believers in Jesus, Lord, that by your kindness you might open up their hearts, that you would cause them to go from death to life, that you'd make their blinds, blind eyes see and their dead heart alive so that they would love Jesus and follow him. Help us now as we think through these very important words from Mark about Jesus. We pray it in his great name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's read, starting in verse 17, chapter 10 of Mark. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, 
but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Well, lots to think about in this text. In fact, we could spend probably a lot more time than you would like to on a Mother's Day, where I'm sure many of you have a roast in the oven or something in the crock pot. So we will do uh, maybe a less than extensive pulling apart of all that is in this text as my gift to you uh, on Mother's Day. First, let's look at the first few verses there where Jesus teaches on wealth. Let's look again at verse 17. Jesus is setting out on this journey, and this man that we commonly call the rich young ruler, because in the, this story is recounted also in Matthew and also in Luke, and in each one of those gospels, one describes him as rich, and in here is described as a young man, so we commonly refer to this story as the rich young ruler. He runs up and kneels before Jesus, and he asks this question, which seems kind of like a legitimate question, but I want us to notice two things about his question. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The first thing I want us to notice is that here's this rich young man who has all of the means that possessions would afford him, but yet isn't the fact that he's even asking a question about what he must do a, a sort of signal that he's still inherently deep down inside realizes something is missing. He, he, he even signals us that, that riches and possessions are not enough. The second thing that I want us to notice there is he says, good teacher. He calls Jesus good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then verse 18, Jesus answers him, and maybe this threw you a little bit. Jesus sort of almost sort of, you know, throws it back at him. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So what is Jesus saying here? Is Jesus saying that he's not God? No. Jesus clearly, from the rest of the scriptures, we see this trinity, this beautiful picture of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So why is Jesus sort of refuting his claim that Jesus is good? And I think this is the reason why. is because this man really doesn't understand who Jesus is. And he's just sort of coming up, sort of almost haphazardly, looking at Jesus, just assuming because he's a noteworthy teacher that therefore that makes him good. And Jesus is wanting to sort of get him off of that track and, and realizing that there's this sort of false assumption by this guy thinking that, well, just because Jesus is this noteworthy teacher must make him good, Jesus shatters his false notions of what goodness is because this man is interacting Jesus with Jesus as merely just a, a man who is noteworthy, who's, who's in the reputation that's sort of swirling around the, the region at this time, a good person. And so Jesus is, is sort of deflating this man's false notion of what good is. He's not rejecting his deity. He's not, you know, the whole Bible's not falling apart here on Jesus' answer to this guy. What Jesus is doing to him is showing that he really doesn't understand goodness. He's assuming that Jesus is good just because he's 
person of position and teaching. And then look at Jesus' answer to this guy in verse 19. This man asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it almost seems as if Jesus is being flippant here. Verse 19, he says, well, you know the commandments. But notice here he doesn't mention all of them. He just mentions the commandments that speak about how we should interact with each other. The sort of horizontal aspect of the law. He says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And in verse 20, the young man says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now that may seem like a sort of uh, presumptuous, a, a rather haughty statement, but I think on some level um, that's possible. Kind of like Paul says in Philippians, he says, regarding the law, I've been blameless. And so Jesus doesn't correct him. He says, yeah, you've been in regards to keeping the law as it regards to sort of your horizontal relationships between other people. Yeah, you've, you've basically done well. But Jesus is wanting to get him deeper into the truer meaning of the law. Jesus is pointing him deeper into the law. In verse 21, he says, he says, and Jesus looking at him loved him and said to him, but you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. So what is Jesus doing there? Jesus just sort of starts off with, in a sense, almost kind of a surface aspect of the law. that The law sort of governs how we should interact with each other. But there's a deeper issue to the law that Jesus is trying to show this man that he is actually guilty of breaking. And we see this in the Gospels. Jesus is encountered several times by people, and they come up to Jesus, and they say to him, what's the greatest commandment of all these laws in the Old Testament? Jesus just quotes some of them. What is the greatest of the commandments? And Jesus says, this is the greatest commandment, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is, like that one, love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, in Matthew's gospel where he speaks about Jesus' speaking of that, that what, we, what we call the golden rule, love the Lord your God and others as yourself, he says that all of the law hangs on that statement. That all of the law, not obeying the sort of horizontal aspect of the law, obeying how we interact with each other, really gets down to whether or not we are loving God with all of our heart. And so what Jesus is doing is he's pointing this guy away from sort of this exterior of human interaction, deep down into the true heart of what it means to be a follower of God, which is to love him and have nothing in your heart that's before him. And so he's sort of whittling down this man to show him that actually, although you've sort of kept the sort of public aspect of the law, there's, a, there's an aspect of the law, really the heart of the law, that you're breaking, which is you're putting something before God, which in this case was his great possessions. Notice that Jesus does not condemn wealth in and of itself. In fact, we see in the scriptures where Jesus has interactions with other wealthy people. Nicodemus in John chapter 3 was a very wealthy man. Jesus says nothing of Nicodemus selling all that he has to follow him. We see Zacchaeus in Luke, where Jesus comes upon this man, Zacchaeus, who climbs up the tree. And certainly some of you have probably memorized a song about Jesus shimmying up a tree. 
And Zacchaeus says, I'll sell half of my possessions. That if I've defrauded anybody, I'll return it fourfold. Jesus doesn't talk to him about having to sell everything there. We see in the end of the Gospels, this rich man who was a sort of secret follower of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, coming to really fulfill prophecy in Jesus' burial by taking his body and putting him in a tomb. And there's no negative mention of Joseph's wealth. And so Jesus is not categorically saying and condemning wealth in and of itself, but what is clear here is that Jesus, in this case, with this man, is pointing to his wealth as an idol that is drawing him away. I know what maybe some of us are thinking, maybe some of us that are maybe more particularly wealthy by American standards are maybe wondering where Brad is going to go with this. And, And those of you that aren't particularly wealthy by American standards... You read this text beforehand and you think, yeah, man, we're going to get them. Let's just kind of level the playing field here. The vast majority of us in this room, uh, by standards of how other people live in the world, all of us are very wealthy. In fact, if you have a checking account and a refrigerator, you are in the very top of wealth in the whole world. And in our particular culture, in this particular church, some of us are even astronomically above that. And so, so, although Jesus is very specifically teaching on wealth here, he's actually going deeper than that. He's not just teaching on wealth. He's teaching on the root problem for all people of all times everywhere, which is idolatry, that there's, there's a myriad of things that can come between us and God as being the central king and throne on the throne of our hearts. For this particular man, it is wealth. For many of, in this, for many of us in this room, it may be wealth. But for some of us, it, it, it may be athletic ability or good looks or some particular intelligence that God has given you. And, and to each of us, Jesus is, is saying the same thing. Are you, can you do with that thing? Has that thing become your functional Savior, your functional God? Jesus called this man to give up his wealth Because simply coming to this man and asking him to follow him would have allowed this man to just sort of lay his faith in Jesus on top of his idol that truly ruled his heart. And Jesus is saying to this man and he's saying to every person in this room that he will not cohabitate with our idols. He will not have only half reign of our hearts. The challenge for us is is that our idols are rarely so pointed out to us so dramatically. Because we actually live in a culture that, you know, is just sort of okay with idols. We float through life building structures of self-sufficiency and we never really notice that our heart is a million miles away from Jesus being on the king, the throne of our hearts. Luther says, Martin Luther, the great reformer, says that man, since the fall, has been curved in on himself. He sort of looks only at himself and gazes at his belly button. Do we understand this? Do we know our idols? Are you not particularly wealthy according to American standards and you're saying, this isn't me? You realize that all of us have idols. Many of us do have the idol of wealth in this room. And Jesus puts his finger on that and says, that is that primary in your life? Jesus continues and he teaches not only on wealth but on salvation. He uses this as a springboard 
to the gospel. Verse 23, Jesus looked around to his disciples whose jaws were evidently on the ground at this point. How difficult, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. In verse 25, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Of God. Verse 27, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Well, a couple things here that I want us to note as we look at Jesus teaching his disciples about salvation. First, we need to understand how the disciples viewed wealth. It was a sort of first century kind of Seeds of the prosperity gospel. It was just sort of latent in the culture. The disciples were shocked when Jesus said how difficult it will be for the rich person to enter the kingdom of God because there was this assumption that wealth in that time was a sign of God's blessing for your moral behavior, right? And so the disciples are, are, are sort of turned upside down. They reasoned that if this man who seemingly is blessed by God because of his great wealth cannot be saved, then who can be saved? And let me just pause here and say, I find this strangely encouraging. I mean, come on, we are in chapter 12 of Mark by now, and we've got these 12 cats who have been following Jesus around for some time now, hearing him teach, and they still are completely missing the point about what it means to follow Jesus. Is anybody else not sort of really encouraged by that? I mean, we should have grace for each other, man. I mean, they are with Jesus, and they're still scratching their head about what seems to be a very obvious point, that just because a person has great wealth doesn't necessarily mean that God is blessing them. So this this turned the disciples upside down, and Jesus then uses really sarcasm to make his point in verse 25. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, over the history of the church, there have been some silly attempts to explain this verse away. Some people have said, well, um, there's actually this gate in the city of Jerusalem. It's kind of a low gate that's sort of, you know, for like garbage disposal. And maybe if you sort of you know, you soap up the side of the camel, and if the camel exhales and the camel were to stoop down, then, you know, th- this camel could go through this particular gate, which was kind of this eye of the needle sort of analogy. And so, you know, just silly little things like that. But, but friends, th- Jesus is not saying any of those things. He's saying what the text clearly says. He's, he's using sort of sarcasm to show that camels can't go through the eye of a needle. Just like a a person, a rich person cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's using sarcasm. It's like saying that Alabama fans can't wear blue and orange. It's impossible. And that's what Jesus is saying. So what is he saying about salvation? Friends, it is clear. And it is humbling. He's saying we cannot save ourselves. See, he doesn't just limit it to rich people. 
He says how, how difficult it will be for those to have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then in verse 24, he says it's difficult for everybody to enter the kingdom of God. And then he says, it's, it's again, he picks it up in verse 25. It, a rich person entering the kingdom of God is like a camel going through the eye of a needle, which then prompts his disciples to say, well, if they can't make it, then who can make it? And then he brings us to this point of futility in verse 27 where he says, it's impossible. With man, it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that we cannot save ourselves. Rich, poor, good-looking, not good-looking, intelligent, not intelligent, white, black, western, eastern, tall, short, sincere, sarcastic, Male, female, young, old, we cannot save ourselves. And he uses this, this picture of a person in society who everybody thinks if anybody could save themselves, it would be this person to sort of argue from the greater to the lesser. If this person can't save themselves, then nobody else can save themselves. It's impossible. Why is it impossible? Because the Bible is clear that our rebellion against God has not merely neutralized us or made us less than optimal in our living. It has, it has caused us to be dead in our sins. And it has rendered us completely unable to make ourselves right with God. Jesus is saying here that salvation is not a decision that rich people or strong people or savvy people or intelligent people make to improve themselves. Salvation is clearly and only a resurrection, a miracle, a resurrection from the dead whereby God moves on the soul of a human and causes them to go from death to life. Salvation in man's terms is impossible and it is wholly and completely in the hands of God. And God does that through offering Jesus, his son, Jesus, the son of God, God the son in the flesh to live the perfect life as Reynolds read this morning from Isaiah 53, to bear the punishment for our sins that have killed us, to satisfy justice and holiness and the punishment that should have been ours, to extinguish it, and then to rise again in victory over sin and death and all of its consequences. And now, because Jesus is alive, he's victorious over death, and he can reverse the effects of our death and our spiritual separation from him by making us alive through the power of his Holy Spirit and his word. My friends, let's just pause here because this is, I think this is incredibly important. How you receive this truth really becomes a foundation for how you view the rest of the Bible and God. We cannot save ourselves. We can't decide ourselves. We can't work ourselves. We can't moralize ourselves. We can't attend church enough. We can't, we can't read enough scripture. We can't be good enough in and of ourselves. 
to save ourselves. We are completely dependent on God. What, how does that strike you? Does it humble you? Does it even anger you? Friends, you need to wrestle with that truth because it's the heart of the gospel that we are wholly and completely dependent on God alone to save us. And we tend to view this negatively, but this truth should actually give us great hope. It should give us hope because we know that it is God who saves. It's not depending on us because if it did depend on us, none of us would ever choose Him. Do you, do you see the beauty of that? I mean, we tend to think, oh, we tend to think of all the negative consequences of this. Friends, but if this were not true, all of us would still be on our sprint away from God towards our idols, whether it's great possessions or whatever it is that has, that has rendered us separated from God. And the beauty of this is this actually holds out hope that we, we can be saved. And God is merciful and does save. And he saves through the preaching of his gospel, through the holding up of Jesus, and through people turning, he giving them new hearts and turning and trusting in him. Friends, this means that the worst of the worst can be saved. This means that the, the teenager, the, the young adult child of a person in this room who is in utter rebellion, who has shown no interest in the things of God, that the, the chapter, the book on their life has not been finalized, and there is hope because God saves people that w- would never save themselves. This should give us great hope, and, and if we've been rescued by God, if we have been brought to life by God, it should give us great humility because we're not saved because we're sharp people or because we have great possessions or because we're Americans or because God gave us some greater ability. This should humble us again and again and again. So, so do you see that not only do sinners need to hear about the power and the hope of the gospel? Because friends, if you're in here and you know yourself not to be a Christian and that you came into this room thinking that there's no way that a life like mine that has been marked by such sin and rebellion can never be redeemed. Do you see, what, do you see the f- mistake you're making? No, no, that's not the gospel. You're not saved by your, we- your works. And, and so Jesus, you are making your rebellion as more powerful than God's power to rescue you. So nobody's beyond the reach of God. So, so sinners need to hear this beautiful gospel that Jesus saves. It is impossible for you to save yourself. And so finally, maybe you will let go of trying and look and turn to God. So sinners need to hear this. But Christians need to hear this too because, because even though we come to that beautiful message of the gospel early on, we oftentimes then spend the rest of our lives just kind of an autopilot, not remembering the grace of the gospel and our salvation. Christians need to hear this again and again so that it will humble us, so that we don't become arrogant, wealthy people or arrogant, intelligent people or arrogant whatever. We are saved by Jesus, not by ourselves. This past week, I was at a pastor's retreat for a small network of pastors that I'm a part of in Kentucky and had a wonderful time. And there was about 50 of us in the room, and we had the opportunity to hear from this pastor who's in the circles that we run in, a pretty well-known guy who's had a long pastoral ministry, about 40 years. And for the 
last 37 of those 40 years, his ministry has been marked by incredible fruit, incredible joy, incredible, incredible success in his ministry, but the last three have been brutal on him. He's actually had to step down from his position and um, engage uh, a, whole, a whole bunch of controversy, much of it attacking his character within sort of his little network of, of, of guys that he serves. And we were asking him about this, about how he's dealt with these past three years, how difficult it's been on him. And he says, you know, I never want to lose the amazement of my salvation. And he says, I, I've been reminded as I think about my own salvation some 45 years ago, that the 37 years of blessing and fruit that I've experienced here on this life, that I didn't deserve any of that. That was all grace. And so looking at how gracious God has been in saving me and how gracious God has been in the majority of my ministry helps me to keep in perspective the trial that I'm going through. And when we remember where we should be, that we deserve to stay in our sins, it will humble us and make us able to fight and endure anything that we face here on this earth. The great hymn, Rock of Ages, has these words in it, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. So look at the progression, friends. Jesus has sovereignly brought about this interaction with this man who was self-sufficient and who worshipped the idol of his wealth and his ability to be a sort of picture that even this guy who, if anybody could do it, this guy could do it, for Jesus to display the complete inadequacy of human ability to affect their relationship with God until he comes and makes us alive. And then Jesus continues with these really, I, I think, just beautiful and really shockingly beautiful words. Let's continue where we see that Jesus teaches on reward. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, okay, I mean, just you can think about his paradigm has just been destroyed. He's, I mean, his knees are shaky. Peter began to say to him, See, we, we, we've left everything and followed you. And, and in a sense, Peter has, you know. And the early disciples there, when Jesus encountered them chapters ago, they, they did. They dropped everything, and they, they're going to following Jesus. In verse 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one, listen to this. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So what is Jesus saying there? He's saying to Peter, yeah, you've done that, Peter, but be, be encouraged because there's no one who's given up everything, who's rejected their idols, who has Jesus on the throne of their heart, who will not receive not just heaven, as beautiful as that is, but also more than that, 
even here in this life. So what is Jesus doing? Is this like, does this just absolutely contradict everything that we've ever said about the disease of the prosperity gospel? I mean, is, G, is this like the, like the early seeds of TBN and Christian television? Is Jesus preaching the prosperity gospel here? There's nobody who's given up everything for me who will not receive all of this and more in this life. So what is Jesus saying? Well, I think there are three things that Jesus is saying about reward for those who leave the world to trust in him. The first is, is that we will be rewarded in this life. So what does Jesus mean by that? Does he mean that if you become a Christian, that you're going to get the mansion and you're going to get all this stuff? No. Jesus is saying that for those that reject their idols, and he's not necessarily saying that we need to reject our family. He's, he's drawing the, the parallel that for those in that time that are leaving the pagan culture of their time and, and because of their faith in Jesus are being alienated from their families, who are now received into the family of the church, receive so much more by being in Jesus, with Jesus' people, in Jesus' community. So, so friends, think about the, the implications of this. That if Jesus is saying, for those of us that reject our idols, that reject this fallen culture, that then become part of his church by very virtue of the fact that we are with Jesus and with his people, it's a thousand times more valuable than anything this broken world has to offer. <laughs> Friends, come on, let's confess this. We do not view, I mean, I think, I think you were tracking with me when we talked about salvation. I think you were tra tracking with me when we talked about wealth. We all have categories for that. But Jesus, think about how Jesus is presenting life together as Christians in community, even here in this life. He's saying that I don't save you as just an individual, but I put you into this family and into this picture, this echo, this deposit of what heaven is going to be like here now and life together in the body of Christ. It should be so much more beautiful and enriching than anything else in any other culture or network that this world has to offer. Friends, let's confess that's not most of our experience because we, we don't preach the gospel. And we don't have a high view of God's saving work. And we let ourselves, we lay the gospel on top of our idols, which are not smashed. And so we come into the church and we continue to accept Jesus as a sort of exterior cover on top of all of our idols. And we don't love each other. We don't care about each other. All we care about is fire insurance. And when we, when we live like that, this truth that Jesus is saying that we will be rewarded more in this life seems foreign to us because we don't have a good picture of it in America, do we? But we can long for this, friends. Do you see that? We can long for this, that, that there would be a day when, when our life together, of course it won't be perfect because there's still sin that we have to grapple with, but our life here in this life as a community of believers in Jesus actually far exceeds anything else that we would experience in this broken culture. Oh, friends, I long for that type of community. And I, I see seeds of us pushing forward to that. But do you see how Jesus holds this out? Not just heaven as glorious as that is, but life here together, 
with brothers and sisters in Christ and houses and lands. That means my house is not my house, it's your house. That means your house is not just your house. It's, it's Jesus' house for Jesus' family, right? So this should, I mean, this should inform a thousand things. It should inform our hospitality. It should inform our view of possessions. What's mine is yours. What's yours is mine. Come, come on, just think about this beautiful, beautiful echo of heaven that is here now called the church. Now, call before you come over. You know? But shouldn't we just, shouldn't we just, shouldn't we just have this beautiful echo of this verse even in our life? And listen, that's hard to do with hundreds of people. So how are we struggling to live this out through doing life together in community groups? Do you you see that if you stay on the edge, I'm getting into application here. I'm going to wrap this up with application. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. But do you see how if you stay on the edge of the church that you're a part of, whether it's this one or some other, that you stunt and neuter this truth? Do you see that when you hoard your possessions and share them only with people that are just kind of in your little demographic, do you see how you stunt this echo of heaven that we should be realizing here now? Oh, so friends, let's fight, man. Let's fight. Let's make living together in community an absolute priority in our lives. Not something that kind of gets third or fourth or down the ladder, but we should fight for this because Jesus says that this is part of our reward. Here now. Life together. Gritty life together. People that, you know, whose lives are broken. Who needs you to listen to them? Not just the professional pastor. Who need us? Young people who need to go into the homes of older people so that they just see how a Christian husband and wife interact with each other. Come on, let's long for this, but oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, so that's just three things that Jesus says about the reward. We will be rewarded in this life too. Notice that we will endure persecution. He says you get all these things, but we're not in heaven yet. You see that? You'll get all these things. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time? Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Comma, with persecutions. He almost just sort of flies by it as if it's like nothing. Bold that puppy out, underline it, highlight it. With persecutions. And we as Americans just fly by that verse. Come on, friends. We need to work into our theology of culture and understanding of the church that what we are experiencing here in America is absolutely abnormal. Absolutely abnormal. And so this should inform the way we engage with culture and a culture that, by the way, is against us and against the church. So when Washington, D.C. and the President of the United States or the Congress or the Senate continues their march towards ungodly policy, we should be good stewards of the freedoms that God has afforded us for the past 200 years in this culture as best as we are able. But friends, we should hold out no hope of a sort of utopia here on earth, friends. This persecution, hatred of the gospel and his people, is the normal mode for the vast majority of Christians on this earth. And so yes, 
Let's be good stewards of the freedom that God has given us. Let's work. Let's vote. Let's, let's do whatever we can within reason to affect the continuation of the freedoms that we have. But friends, know this. Know this. That, that it is part. In fact, Jesus guarantees that we will suffer persecution. And so when laws get passed, and when we get to a place where maybe even in this church we can't meet in a building like this, or the government removes maybe economic and tax shelters that have helped nonprofit organizations like us do okay. When those things get removed, friends, we should not be surprised and we should not act like the sky is falling because we serve a God who is sovereign and supreme and who is moving human history towards the glory of His Son, King Jesus, when He splits open the sky and comes again and makes everything right and every knee will bow. We should be good stewards of our freedom, but we should not hold on to our freedom and our past lack of persecution as something more valuable than the age to come. And then, verse number three, we will receive eternal life. So Jesus teaches on reward. He says three things. We will be rewarded in this life. We will endure persecution we will receive eternal life. These 80, 90 years are not all that there is to it. Let me read from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. The writer of Hebrews writing to Christians who were being persecuted for their faith says this. But recall the former days, Hebrews 10, verse 32. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. Listen to this. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Oh, my goodness. Paul is saying here that when the government came and took over your house for being a Christian, you joyfully accepted it because your house and your wealth and even your democratic freedom wasn't an idol because you were longing for that life and that city and that kingdom to come. Again, be good stewards of the freedom we have. But friends, let's not let our wealth, our possession, our comfort be an idol. Therefore, verse 35, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So, Jesus teaches us about wealth. Jesus teaches us about salvation, and Jesus teaches us about reward in this life and the next. Very briefly, let me give a few sentences, paragraphs, non-alliterated statements of application for each. Jesus teaches us about wealth. What should this impress on us? we should realize that we are prone, like this young man, as citizens of the most prosperous culture in the history of mankind, to trust in our means. 
All of us. All of us. We should be very aware that wealth brings options. And I think part of the thing that stunts much of our productivity and fruitfulness in the kingdom of God is that we have so many options. So many options. We can do this, this, nothing stops us. And all these options cipher off our focus on what is truly important here in this life and in eternity. Listen to what Paul writes to a young pastor. Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Friends, that, that verse speaking to all of us. So that's some application on what Jesus teaches us about wealth. Some application about what Jesus teaches us on salvation. It is good for us to feel, in fact, it is necessary for us to feel the impossibility of salvation through our work and to understand that we are saved by Jesus' work alone and nothing that we have done. We should remember that while we are programmed by our culture to run away from inadequacy and humility, Jesus runs to it. And this should give us great hope for those that do not yet trust and believe Jesus because no one is beyond his ability to save. And this should cause us to worship God all the more for our great salvation and should inform the way we deal with difficulty and persecution here in this life. Some thoughts and application about Jesus' teaching on true reward. May we be the type of people and church that fights to realize the truth of Jesus' words about receiving a hundredfold more in this life through our life together so that it would be a display of the life that is to come in heaven. May we be the type of people who fight to forsake temporal, selfish pleasures and lay down our preferences and our prejudices for whatever they may be so that we would strive for this picture of the community of God and heaven that will be. May we be the type of church that fights for this realization. Fights for it. So there's some practical implications there. It means that you, we as Christians here should always have our head on a swivel to be on the lookout for people that are outside of our sort of normal demographic that we can run to and share our lives with. Right? And it also means that if you don't have a big house or, or great things to share with people or a whole big natural family, still your head should be on a swivel to look for people that you can engage that are not like you so that you can run to them and you can share the deposit of God's grace that he's given you, which you never know may encourage you. You may be a single guy without a nickel in your pocket, 
But God may be using the largesse of his grace in your heart to unlock his goodness in the heart of somebody who has everything that this world has to offer. Do not diminish how God can use you as a means as you open up your heart to share it with people even here in this room. May we commend the beauty and all-sufficiency of Jesus and what life is like in his kingdom by the way we live together here in this life. So here's a challenge for you. Here's a challenge. Have your head, even now, don't make it awkward and start looking around and you're like freaking people out. But either today or in the next couple weeks, make it your mission to bridge some uncomfortable cultural gap between you and somebody else, maybe even on the same aisle or section. Or maybe if you're sitting over here, sit over there and meet some new people and just make it your mission to get outside of yourself, it's going to feel awkward and clumsy. And it's, going to be like a, it's going to be like a middle school dance. You know, you want boys over here, go, we won't know what we're doing. But, but let's, let's make the effort to get outside and commend to share our lives with each other. If you've been here at this church for, for several years and you're not in community with anybody except this little slice of people that you, you hang around all the time, break that idol. Get outside of it. Prioritize your life along the lines of, of this beautiful reward that Jesus says should be a reality for us now. And all friends, it'll be awkward. It'll be, it'll be awkward. It'll be uncomfortable. But oh, it will be worth it, man. It'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. Jesus, is, his words are true. And he says that this sort of beautiful cross-cultural, cross-racial, cross-demographic, cross-generational body sort of ministry where we roll up our sleeves and love each other and share is a hundredfold more, more satisfying than anything this broken world has to offer. Oh, let's long for that. Let's long for that. May we be the type of church that embodies the gospel we preach by the very way we love each other. Mothers, I lied. I said I'd be short. You knew that was false hope. <laughs> you, you, I don't, I'm not even going to apologize because when I said that I was going to be quick, you, you just shook your head and said, no, he's not. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, I confess to you that some 24 years ago, I think was the moment that I heard the gospel for the first time and trusted in Jesus for the first time as a senior in high school. But for much of the last few decades, I have... Um, just laid faith in Christ over the top of my idols. So thank you, Lord, for causing me to read passages like this and again and again and again identify and repent of my idols. And I pray for my friends in this room that they would do the same, whether it's wealth or whatever it may be. May we seek out our idols and 
fight them and repent of them and smash them with your help. And we, may we love you, Lord, with all of our strength, with all of our soul, and all of our mind. May we feel the, the impossibility of saving ourselves. May that humble Christians in this room so that they would be reminded that they're not Christians because they're better than anybody else or because they're smarter than anybody else or anything else, but solely because of your grace, God. Only because of your grace do we, do we know you. Are we alive? And God, would that produce hope? Hope for a person in this room who does not know Jesus. That God, that, that beautiful pride-smashing, God-exalting truth, that, God, that would be so beautiful and so irresistible to them that finally maybe they would let go of their effort and morality and their righteousness and finally grab a hold of your free, beautiful grace. Finally, Lord, would we, would we just be fierce in our pursuit of what Jesus lays out here as, as our reward. Lord, help us to be people that long for heaven. That we, we long for heaven, and we know, Lord, that, that built into this deal is persecutions and trial, and we should expect that, God. It should not unduly shake us when we experience it. God, build that into our hope and, and, and cause us to long more for for eternity than for the, the broken things of this age. But even then, God, when we be fierce in pursuing the, the here and now reward of life together as a community of Jesus followers. May we share our lives with one another. May, may, we, may we, God, gain a hundredfold more than this world has to offer. Help us fight for that. Lord, I pray that you'd, you'd cause us now to worship you, to sing of your grace, and to revel in your goodness. I pray that you'd do these things for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.